0: Good morning, Good morning. it's good to see you all today, uh, I don't know Chris, there you go son, that boy likes to taunt his daddy, I hope you all are having a good day today and continues all week long, I heard the temperatures going up, I'm kind of tickled about that, I've been asked to uh, discuss Matthew 27 verses 45 through 55. Uh basically it deals with a, it's a general preview, if you will, of the uh, resurrection, which uh, we ultimately will be partakers in. But it's a, it's a passage that I don't get to very often. Uh, I kind of stopped before there, usually having said what I wanted to say. And uh, I was asked just to carry it on a bit farther. So that's what we'll do. Uh, now from the sixth hour, the beginning verse 45, the sixth hour would be 12 o'clock noon by Matthew's reckoning. We know that our Lord was crucified at 9 a.m., so he's been hanging from the cross for three hours. Then at, at noon, uh, things began to change and stayed that way until 3 p.m. There was darkness over all the land. A lot of discussion over the land, over what land, over the world. Uh, how do we understand that? Uh, The word land comes from the Greek, uh, gi, and it's translated uh, into a lot of different words. Uh, Earth, land, ground, country, world. Uh, More than likely, I would suppose that the meaning of it is over the land of Judea. When uh, the Lord um, punished Egypt with the plagues, he said on that land, there was darkness over all the land of Egypt. That's probably what was going on here. I don't know that it would have been around the entire earth. Some people say, well, there was an eclipse. There was no eclipse. This is the Passover, which means it's just the opposite of an eclipse. There there was no eclipse that could have happened. The Lord miraculously made it dark, very dark, dark enough where it got the attention of a lot of people. They were frightened by what they were seeing. In Exodus 10.22, Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt. And that's probably what happened here. There was thick darkness over the land of Judea. The next word I want to look at is the word darkness. Why darkness? Why did it turn dark? When the Lord was born, the night sky around Bethlehem was filled with supernatural light. The whole sky lit up. And the glory of the Lord shone all around, and the shepherds in the field, Luke chapter 2 and verse 9. When Jesus was born, the sky was filled with light at night. Uh, The Lord spoke of, or rather John spoke of Jesus, I'm sorry, as the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Jesus said of himself that he was the light of the world, John 8 and verse 12. Light in the Bible generally symbolizes purity and holiness. Well, if that's the case, while Jesus' godliness, holiness, righteousness, purity, etc., are associated with light, it stands to reason that sin and wrath, the wrath of God, that is, are associated with darkness. And the Bible teaches us uh, as much. In John 3 and 19, Jesus is explaining why people are going to be coming under condemnation in the last day. This is the reason. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. People have taken a look at the Son of God and don't really like what they see and turn their attention back to other matters. And Jesus said, in essence, this is the reason uh, condemnation will take place According to the Babylonian Talmud, uh, many of the rabbis had taught for a long time at this time that the darkening of the sun was a judgment of God on the world for an unusually heinous sin. This isn't the law of God, this is the teaching of the teachers, and um, they were expressing something that everybody was familiar with, and darkness, of course, when it fell on the land, they immediately associated with the fact that an innocent man was hanging on the cross. And they trembled at the prospect that God was angry. When the Lord uh, passes judgment, behold, Isaiah says, darkness and sorrow. The light is darkened by the clouds, Isaiah 530. In Isaiah thirteen, ten 10, 11, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light when the Lord gets angry. The sun will be darkened in is going forth. The moon will not cause its light to shine. He said, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. When the Lord passes judgment, it's a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, according to Joel chapter 2, verse 2. When the Lord passes judgment, Amos said, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? Darkness is associated with... The anger of the Almighty God. Then he says, about the ninth hour, which will be about three p.m. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani," which is translated from Hebrew, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Forsaken me. I've thought a lot about this the other day. You know, uh, God is an eternal being. He, he's always been what that means is the father and the son have never not been together the father son and the holy spirit there's there's never been any type of division there's never been any kind of a separation for the first time in his eternal existence Jesus experienced three hours without the father and the holy spirit He'd never gone through that before. And I, I, I take it by the way he responds that it was uh, the source of a great deal of anxiety that he suffered that day. Perhaps the greatest anxiety of all that he suffered in spite of the physical sufferings he went through. God is holy, why have you forsaken me? Well, God is holy. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. God is a purer eyes than to behold evil. He cannot look on wickedness. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, he said, Jesus was wounded for our transgressions, our sins. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Jesus. And by Jesus' stripes we are healed. And God is holy. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 and three. In 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, he said, the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He became the representative of all the sins of humanity. And the Father is a pure eyes. To look on such a being. Paul said in Galatians 3.13. Christ has become a curse for us. For it is written. Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. The cross. Christ became the curse. He bore all sins. Peter said. In his own body. Whilst hanging on the tree. 1 Peter 2.24. God is holy. And he forsook Jesus and he hanged there by himself. Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. A lot of speculation as to why Jesus might call for Elijah. He didn't call for Elijah. He called to my father, my father. But the Hebrew term, as well as the Aramaic term, they both sound a lot like Elijah. Uh, the term used by our Lord in Matthew is Eli. Uh, the name of Elijah in the Hebrew is Elias. When you say Eli, Elias, it's not too hard to get the two confused, especially when you stop and consider uh, what was taking place at that time. Jesus had been uh, beaten within an inch of his life with a scourge. He had been nailed to the cross. He had been up the night before being uh, analyzed by his adversaries, and now he's been hanging there for six hours, looking down on the crowd that, that mocked him. The blood, the body fluids that came from his body, without a doubt, left him so dry that he might, have, he might have shriveled up like a, like a prune or a raisin. His throat, I would suppose, was so dry, it was very hard for him to articulate words. So when he, when he called out to, the, to God, he may have done so with a voice that was very hard to understand, especially given the fact that the two words were so close to one another. And right after this, John tells us that Jesus said, I thirst. They thought he called for Elijah, and he said, I thirst. He needed something to drink. I think he probably needed to drink something so he would be able to articulate his words more perfectly. At this time, his, his insides were, were dry as a chip. And he probably, his tongue was sticking to the roof of his mouth and he was having a hard time saying what he wanted to. I don't think you have to make a big deal out of him supposedly calling for Elijah. I think, quite simply, they misunderstood him because he wasn't easily understood, at least at this time. Immediately, one person of them ran and he took a sponge. He filled the sponge with sour wine. John nineteen twenty nine tells us, that sitting there was uh, probably a short barrel of sour wine that was used by the soldiers. When they needed a a drink of water, they would go over there and get it out of this sour wine uh, barrel. The sour wine was was a cheap wine and it was watered down to the point where you're not gonna get drunk off of it. Alcohol content is really low because they put so much wine. You don't want a bunch of drunk soldiers running around. So they dilute it with all this water. Well, apparently, because Jesus was having a hard time speaking and because he was so thirsty, somebody that was listening, they grabbed a sponge and they went over to where this wine barrel was and they filled the sponge up with the wine and then they put it on a reed. The reed was a part of a little, it's a very little tree the longest branches on this tree grows about two feet, maybe three feet on a big tree. Well, what does that tell us? Imagine in your mind, if you would, you take this sponge and you're going to put it on the stick because Jesus is hanging from a cross, right? So you, you take this sponge, you put it on a stick and you reach it up to the Lord's mouth. How high off the ground could Jesus possibly be? If he's got a two-foot, maybe a three-foot stick, how far off the ground could the Lord be and still be able to reach that stick? You know, all my life I've seen pictures of the crucified Christ, and they've always got him hanging way up in the air. He's suspended way up in the air. And I always had difficulty with that because the prophet Isaiah, he talks about the dogs biting at his feet while they hang from the cross. And how how did dogs bite his feet if he was hanging 10 feet off the ground? How did the dogs get up there to him? You see, the truth of the matter was, his feet probably weren't over that far off the ground. He was on a cross. His feet were suspended. But he wasn't way up in the air. He was down low. So a man could take the sponge, put it on a stick, and he could reach it to him rather easily. Sometimes our perceptions have been obscured because of things we've heard or seen. And the crucifixion, I think, is one of those things that we don't, may not get the right picture of. Uh, but when you think about that read, uh, it, it kind of helps. He offered this up to the Lord to drink. And Jesus, he drank because he needed something in his mouth, in his body. The rest of the people around said, let him alone. How do you interpret that? Uh, I, I guess you could interpret it different ways. i tell you how I interpret it. Uh, most say that they, they didn't want Jesus to experience any relief. I don't really think that's the case. I think at this particular time, because the skies turned so dark, and th- that they watched this man as he hanged on the cross. I mean, he hasn't said much. He hasn't cursed anybody. He, he's been considerate of the people who crucified him. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. And they look at this man and they think, man, he's a good guy. He, he's a good man. You know, I don't know, he may be nuts or something, but he's still a good man. And then all of a sudden the sky turns very black. And they associate that with the anger of God. So they're probably somewhat fearful. What if he is the son of God as he claimed to be? I don't think these people are being hateful. Some no doubt were. But at this time, six hours after he's been crucified, I think people, most people, most people start feeling sorry for a man. I don't care who he is. They start feeling sorry for him because he's suffering so horribly. And I think when they said leave him alone, I think what they may have meant by that is get out of his way and let him speak. Let him call for Elijah. Let's see if Elijah comes. He might come. Let's see if the prophet comes, so let him alone. That's my understanding of it. If you got a different one, that's okay. We can have a cup of coffee after service. I won't fall out with you over it. But I'll tell you how I think about it. It's not the not not the law. It's just my opinion. Let him alone. Leave him be. Jesus cried again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. Notice the statement. Jesus yielded up his spirit. Jesus yielded up his spirit. It sounds like Jesus decided to yield up his spirit. It came to a point in time where Jesus said, it's time to go. And he went. It sounds like he might be saying that because that's exactly what he's saying. The The phrase, he cried out with a loud voice. First thing you notice, he cries with a loud voice. He got that drink of water, and now he he can talk a little better than he could talk before. He was able to speak his words more intelligibly, and he spoke them louder. Before, he said, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabah But now he can speak with a loud voice because he has the capability he's not at death's door he's closed but he still got some life left in him he said it is finished and then he went on to say father into your hands I commit my spirit he wasn't at death's door just close but he still had enough inside that he could say the things he wanted to say And he did, and he did it with a loud voice. He cried out again with a loud voice, and then he yielded up his spirit. The word yield comes from a a Greek term. The basic meaning is to let go or to send something away. The idea we're given by this word, he yielded up his spirit, is that he let go of his spirit or he sent his spirit away, okay? It has to do with personal volition. It was within Jesus's power to send his spirit onto paradise if he so chose. Well, that sounds a little far out. It did to me when I first thought about it, but then you think about some of the things the Lord said. In John chapter 10, verse 18, regarding his life, Jesus one time said, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay my life down. I have power to take it up again. The command I have received from my Father. He had the power of life within himself. In Mark 15 verses 43 and 4, Joseph of Arimathea went into Pilate, and he asked for the body of the Christ so he could bury him in his sepulcher. And Pilate marveled that Jesus was already dead. He couldn't believe he was already dead. it would only been six hours, and the man's already dead. Pilate was marveling over that prospect. It appears that what the Lord said so long ago actually came to pass. He yielded up. He let go of his spirit. I don't know what it's like to die. I really don't. I've never done it before. And I don't know. Is it within our ability to let go? Is it our ability to send ourselves away? Can we give up to the point that we go with the angels to be with the Father in paradise? I don't know. Possible, I suppose. And in the Lord's case, it appears to have been that way. Well, Jesus died, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. First, we notice the veil of the temple. I want to think about the temple and the veil for just a moment, please. Imagine this is the temple. It's 30 feet wide, 90 feet long. Imagine we're above the temple. We're looking down at a drawing of it, okay, an architectural drawing of the temple. What we would see from the top view down is we would see two compartments inside the temple. The large compartment, two-thirds of the temple, was what is called the holy place in the scriptures. The other compartment, much smaller, 30 by 30 room, it's called the most holy place. And this is important on this particular day. In the holy place, you have a table of showbread. You have a golden candelabra that lights up the room that they're in and then you have an altar of incense where they burn incense which are representative of the prayers of the saints in the most holy place you're going to find the ark of the covenant and sitting atop of the ark of the covenant is going to be god it was on this day the day of the passover that the priest would go into the most holy place and offer up sin or blood rather for the sins of the people it was a very busy day. There was a lot of activity going on. And all these priests are in the holy place, although only one can go into the most holy place. Now, it's 3 p.m. on Friday evening when Jesus passed away. What does that mean? That means this place was full of priests. There were priests tending to the table of showbread, the golden candelabra, the altar of incense. There were priests at the doorway there were priests on the outside and all around the temple. This place was loaded down with priests. My point, is, when the veil of the temple tore, all these priests were witness to it. They all seen it when it happened. Now let's go a little bit further and think about the veil that was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Imagine the veil. We're looking, we're we're in the holy place now, and we're looking at the at the veil or a curtain. That's what it is. It's a curtain. It's a very large curtain. It took a lot of men to pick this thing up. It was so big. But we're looking at the veil <clears throat> that separates the holy place from the most holy place. Okay? And in, in here we have uh, some what we would imagine. If the veil was torn, you would think, you know, a guy would get a knife, he would cut the bottom of the veil, and then he would split it from the bottom to the top. That's the way I would do it. You gotta keep in mind that this this veil is 60 feet tall. Okay, it's 30 feet wide, it's 60 feet tall. This thing is huge. And it's very, very, very thick. It's about four or five layers to it all together, ornamental with a lot of different color. Uh, But what happened on this that's significant and it would have been very meaningful to the priests that saw it happen, was that instead of it tearing from the bottom to the top, the veil tore from the top to the bottom, indicating that this was heaven's doing. In other words, when his son died on the cross, God tore the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And guess what they saw back there? Nothing. They saw the Ark of the Covenant but they did not find God because this is what it signifies. God's not there anymore. God's not with Israel anymore. He's gone. He's abandoned her. After all these years of living in the first the tabernacle, then the the temple, after sitting there in judgment, every single Passover, on this day, God left. He had left Israel. He wanted nothing more to do with Israel. In 40 years, just 40 years, he would summon the Roman legions and send them into Jerusalem to destroy that city, and they did. Tore that place to the ground, and when they got done, they took their turning plows, and they turned the ground over. When they got finished, you couldn't tell anybody ever lived in Jerusalem except for the part of one wall that remained that Nehemiah had built. It was, uh, God was finished. And it was undeniable that God was finished. The quaked and the rocks were split. There's earthquakes with the anger of God is a common phenomenon. Look at a few passages. All these refer to the anger of God and uh, earthquakes. But I'll show you just one in Jeremiah 10 and 10. At his wrath, the earth will tremble. It's almost as though God is angry and he grabs the earth and he just shakes the daylights out of it. Of course, that's not what he does, but he does cause the ground to tremble to the point even that rocks were breaking. And even more, there were graves that were being opened by this phenomenon. The graves were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. You want to notice, first, there were many involved. Number two, these were saints. It wasn't just everybody. It was the people who had died in the will of God. These were the people that were selected to be raised on this particular day. They had fallen asleep. They had died sometime previous to this, and now they're going to be raised. It looks like, when you look at it, that they're being raised on the day that Jesus died. But that's not what really happened. We we'll read a little bit farther. We'll see and understand. Coming out of the graves, these people, who were raised back to life, coming out of the graves after Jesus was resurrected. The sepulchers, the graves, they were opened on Friday, but those that were in the graves did not come forth from the graves until after Jesus did. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18, we're told that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. They couldn't come forth before he did. He was going to be the first one that would come forth from the dead. And after he come forth from the dead on Sunday, we would suppose, I reckon, that they came forth as well. They had died and they were raised. They went into the holy city, that is the city of Jerusalem. And they appeared to many as witnesses, testifying to the fact that there was a great resurrection that occurred on that Sunday. Well, who were the resurrected people? Well, they're called saints. They're not Christians because there were no Christians at that time. These are Jews who had lived godly lives. These were Jews that the father was proud of. I went through some of the commentaries and they were referring back to people back as far as uh, Moses, people back there being brought to life. I can't say that's not true. I I don't think it is. It could be. I could figure out a way to explain it. But I don't think that's the way it happened. You see, you got to keep in mind that these people were going to be witnesses to folks in Jerusalem. How can you witness to people in Jerusalem that you've been raised from the dead unless they first know that you were dead? Wouldn't they have to have knowledge of the dead before their coming back would mean anything? If somebody was raised from the dead and nobody knew who he was, you don't know where that guy came from. He could have come from Galilee or anywhere as far as you know. But what if it's your father or your mother? What if it's a sibling, your grandfather? What if it's your children? What if it's your spouse? How many were there? I don't know. Could have been thousands of them. I'm sure there were many. It says many. I'm sure there were many people that came back from their graves. And they were sent into Jerusalem. And their presence would testify to the resurrection. But I think the people in Jerusalem had to know who they were and they'd hold their mom's back, and it would freak them out. You don't expect stuff like that to happen. It would have been a good day, but I think it would have been a frightening day. There's other questions that come up as well. Did they, like Lazarus, have to live and die again? Or were they raised once and for all. Well, one thing to keep in mind, please, is that Jesus was to be the first raised from the dead for eternity. Now, we know other people that were raised from the dead. Lazarus, he was raised from the dead. Does that mean Jesus was second? No, no. Lazarus was raised from the dead and he had to die again. Jesus was raised from the dead never to die anymore. I don't know I couldn't prove it if my life depended on it but I have a feeling that these people who were raised from the dead that day didn't have to go through death another time. It's my opinion that when Jesus ascended back to the Father these folks went with him. Their resurrection was unlike any other resurrection that had ever occurred because Jesus was the first of many on that particular day. It's, Matthew says their bodies were raised. The bodies came up from the graves. Well, we know that the spirit isn't in the body. The body came up from the grave, but it doesn't have a spirit because the spirit's in the Hadean world. So what must have happened on that day When the body came up from the grave, the spirit came back and re-entered that body again. And now that they have been resurrected into a new body, they went into the city of Jerusalem and presented themselves alive. Some of them could have been dead for 10 years, 20 years. I don't know. Nobody knows. There's no way to know. It's all speculation on our part. But I'm very confident that there's a difference between this resurrection and the resurrection of Lazarus. And that's just my opinion for whatever that's worth. When the centurion and those with him, I suppose that means the soldiers who were with him, they had, well, they were guarding Jesus. When they saw the earthquake, the darkness was already there, they saw the earthquake and the things that happened they feared greatly saying truly truly this was the son of God this was a divine activity not only the centurion but also the soldiers and many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him were there and they were looking on from afar I think that's a fair representation of what we read in this place the point to take away I think is one day there shall be a resurrection. The bodies will come forth from the grave. The spirits will return from the Hadean world. They're going to re enter into a body, an indestructible body, a body that will never die, a body that will never hurt. There's not going to be any nerves in it. There's not going to be any pain in it. Your teeth are never going to give you a problem, and you will not have pimples. This body that's raised from the dead is going to be an absolute perfect body that's going to last forever and ever and ever. Amen. And we're gonna get one of them on that day. And then we'll see our people. We'll see our family members. We'll see the people we go to church with. We'll see the many friends that we've made in this world. We'll pass through by the judgment seat of our Lord and we'll go on to be with him in heaven forever and ever and ever. Let not your heart be troubled, he said. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many mansions. If it weren't, so, if it weren't true, I would have told you, hello, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, and he went, and if I go, I will come again, and I'll receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. we're deciding where we're going to live throughout eternity. We're deciding that right now. If you want to live with God forever, you have but to believe him and follow his way. As Christians, we have to continue patiently in the Christian walk. And sometimes we slip for a host of different reasons. We choose to sin. But the question now is, Have I got enough faith about me to repent of my sin and to ask God to forgive me?